0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. It's where we left off last week, midway through some of the deepest, but I believe, clear waters in all of Hebrews and all of the Bible. So as you're finding Hebrews chapter 7, and I really want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you, whether uh, that's your own Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the ones in front of you and the rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that, that's our gift to you. You can find Hebrews. It's towards the end of the New Testament, uh, one of the last few books in the New Testament towards the very end. I'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word open. We're going I want you to stare at the words that we're going to go through, we're going to read slowly and understand the logic of scripture. As you're finding that, I want you to know about something, and then in a moment we're going to pray about and for this person. A uh, former member of Crosspoint, Frank Rubio, we've got a picture of him, he is a NASA astronaut, uh, and he has been up in space at the International Space Station for over a year, in fact there's a next picture you can see, this is Frank there. Orbiting around the Earth. He's at the, he, I guess he's, that's from the International Space Station. And Frank and his wife Deb, along with their children, were members of Crosspoint several years ago. Frank uh, came to Fort Benning uh, as an Army doctor. Before that, he was a combat uh, pilot. He flew Apache helicopters, many combat missions in Afghanistan, transitioned from the aviation branch into becoming an Army doctor, which brought him to Fort Benning, where he did his residency and after he was a family practice doctor for a while he went on to be a doctor for the special forces which th- took them to Alabama and other places and then after that as if he hadn't achieved enough he applied to be an astronaut in NASA for NASA and he, he, he was accepted and last September Frank uh, went on his first space mission and he's up he's been at the International Space Station now here's the thing Frank was supposed to come back six months ago, but apparently his return ride, there was some sort of problem with some sort of valve or something, and so that ride was bad. And I guess they can't just send another spaceship up the next day that's good. So he had to wait six more months. So Frank now has been in space and he's coming back, Lord willing, this Wednesday and will set a record, in fact has set a record, for the longest time in space of even any American astronaut. And he's a, a former member of Crosspoint. Praise God, and so we're just thankful for this brother for what he is doing, for the sacrifices that he has made for our country, and the sacrifices that it's that it's uh, obviously been for his family. So, can we pray for Frank and Deb Rubio and their precious children, uh, and ask the Lord to be gracious to them? And we're just thankful. Uh, for, you know, I think about, man, if you think you've accomplished a lot in life, go talk to Frank. <laughs> if you're feeling kind of kind of proud of yourself, uh, let, let, let me, let's, let's set you up with a phone call with Frank. What have you been doing for the last year in your life, huh? Well, let me pray for the Rubios and for Frank's safe return, and then I'll pray for our text and our time together in the Word. Lord, thank you for the Rubio family. Oh, what a sweet time we had with them for several years as they were Coming through Fort Benning, now Fort Moore, their time serving our nation as an aviator, as a, as an army physician, and now as a NASA astronaut, we thank you for the ways that you've gifted this man and this couple, for the sacrifices that they've made as a family on our behalf in wartime and in peacetime and now in space, but we know that um, this year in space has obviously taken a toll on their family. We pray for Frank's safe return this Wednesday, Lord willing, for wonderful reuniting with his wife and children. We pray, Lord, that you would use the things that he's done up in space for the flourishing of all mankind. We thank you for the way that you've given man the common grace to do these amazing things. We pray that you would help our nation and other nations steward wisdom and technology and knowledge well for the glory of God for the good of people, regardless of whether these governments acknowledge you or not. In fact, most of them do not, but yet they are all sovereignly controlled by you. You're bringing all things to your appointed end, and we trust in that. We thank you for Frank and Deb. Bring him back safely, we pray. And Lord, as we turn our attention to this passage today in the middle of this beautiful argument by the writer of Hebrews, that may be a bit complex for our modern ears. I pray that you would give me the grace to explain it well and the grace to these brothers and sisters and friends to understand it. Help us to draw near to Jesus today. Help us to be closer to him. If we're believers already, let us be more transformed into the image of Christ. And for those that are with us this morning that do not know Jesus, God, would, by the preaching of your word, by the work of your spirit, or would you give life to any dead hearts today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, rather than read the whole text, we're going to read verses 11 through 25. It's a bit weighty. It's a bit complicated. We're right in the middle of a, a, a rather complex argument that the writer of Hebrews is making. Remember, the point of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything in the Old Covenant. And he's writing, the writer of Hebrews is writing to first century Jews in Rome who, because of persecution, were tempted to give up on their confession to Jesus and go back to what was easier and simpler, which was trusting in Judaism and the Old Covenant. And we made the argument last week when we looked at verses 1 through 10 that we followed the line of thinking of the writer that, that he brings up this Old Testament mysterious figure, this, this priest Melchizedek, who is this strange uh, figure that comes up in Genesis chapter 14, out of nowhere, even before the priesthood is introduced by Moses later in the law at Mount Sinai in Exodus. And he is this shadow. He's a real person, but there's very few details about Melchizedek in the Bible intentionally because then the Holy Spirit inspires the writer of Hebrews to use this man Melchizedek as a kind of shadow, in other words, an Old Testament sign that is pointing to Jesus. And Melchizedek shows up even before the law has come through Moses in the early chapters of Genesis, even before the establishment of the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood that Moses establishes in the law at Mount Sinai. Melchizedek shows up as a forerunner of all of that, and he shows up as this, the scriptures call him a priest king who shows up to Abraham. And Abraham had just won some battles and he was coming back from with the spoils of war and it says that Abraham gives a tithe. He 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 honors Melchizedek as the priest. And so he's 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 subordinating himself to this priest king figure Melchizedek. And then the writer of, and then that's all we really know about Melchizedek. We don't know anything about his His past, we don't know anything about his future. He just kind of shows up out of nowhere. No genealogy, no history, nothing. And then the writer of Hebrews, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, draws upon this strange, mysterious picture of this priest in the Old Testament, even before priests were a thing, to be a kind of picture of Jesus. And the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. Is that Jesus stands outside of and above the Old Testament priesthood. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the sha- He's the reality that the shadow of this Melchizedek priest is pointing to. He has no beginning no end, kind of like Melchizedek. Even though Melchizedek was a real man who had a real birth and a real death, the fact that nothing about his history is mentioned serves as a kind of figure to point to Jesus. And so Jesus is, this is the conclusion of the author of Hebrews, Jesus is better than the Levites. And that this Melchizedek points to the true and better one that stands outside of anything in the law. In fact, he's the one that the law is pointing to. He is this forever priest Jesus, who, who stands for his people. And we're in the middle of that argument. And we made that argument last week in verses 1 through 10. And we find ourselves here continuing that argument. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to read verses 11 through 25. I'm going to go pretty quickly, hopefully, verses 11 through 24. And then we're going to get to the conclusion. And I think the one verse that we want to sort of settle on this morning is verse 25, which is one of the sweetest verses in all of Hebrews, maybe in all of the Bible. So let me read uh, verses 11 through 24 quickly, and then we'll pause on verse 25. Let's start with verse 11 and 12. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So again, again, we're, we're sort of diving down right in the middle of the argument that we began last week at the beginning of chapter 7 is that the writer of Hebrews is bringing up this idea that Jesus is better than the Old Testament priesthood. And that's really the whole point of Hebrews. He he starts off in in Hebrews chapter 1 talking about how Jesus is better than the angels who gave the law. He's better than Moses who gave the law. He's he's better than the promised land that the law pointed to. And and here in chapter 7, he's taking up this idea of the priests, how Jesus is better than the priests. And when we get into chapter 8, he's going to talk about how Jesus is better than the covenant. And in chapter 9, he's better than the sacrifices that the priest gave. And so because Jesus is better than all these things, don't go backwards in the redemptive timeline. Hold on to Jesus. Don't give up on Jesus. That's the point. Now, we may be tempted to think, let me pause. We may be tempted to think, well, what's the relevancy? Can't, Can't Hebrews just be boiled down into this one sort of tweet? Like, Jesus is better. Why do I need 13 chapters to to compare it to all of these Old Testament ideas. I mean, we're 21st century readers. What does this have to do with us? Friends, don't forsake the detail of the Bible in explaining the plan of redemption, okay? This is important for us to read our Bibles rightly. Sometimes Christians think that the Old Testament is kind of bad, and the New Testament is good, and thank God we live in this day. But that's covenant as insufficient or bad and the new covenant as good. Think of it. Using all of these things in his dealings with Israel over the course of. To. Is where Jesus. brings the redemption promised for in all of these in America and we're thankful to be Americans right but we go to school and we learn about the American Revolution and we learn about George Washington crossing the the Potomac or the Delaware I'm I, I, public school in California I know it's kind of blurry I, I don't know <laughs> But you, you know he did something really courageous, right? And and it, and what it does is it serves to deepen our appreciation. We think about World War II, and we think about men parachuting in to D-Day, and, and we 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 watch movies depicting Marines going on landing crafts, dropping. The, the ramp and, and charging the hill as the machine gun fire from the Germans on the hills above eats them up. And even to this day, we have a church full of men who have served our country in incredibly dangerous situations, securing for us and protecting for us a freedom which we deeply appreciate, which we appreciate because we know the history and the depth of the endurance and the sacrifice of these men and people, right? Amen? Well, in the same way, Christians that just want to grab from the Bible kind of treasure box verses to help them for today and neglect the story, the long story of redemption through the Bible, which is what Hebrews is taking us through, miss the depth and the beauty and the nuance of God's redemptive plan and how we got to this place. Because when we read Hebrews and when we think about, well, what does the Old Testament priesthood have to do with me today? We should see God's patient, kind dealings with his people, and it should cause in us a kind of gratitude and joy, saying, praise God for such, this is the words of Hebrews, for such a great salvation. And so what does the Old Testament priesthood have to do with us? It has to do everything with us and for us. Verse 13 and 14. For the one of whom these things were spoken belonged to another tribe. So he's saying there's, there's this new priest. He's just continuing his argument. He's reinforcing it. He's like any good preacher. He's repeating himself. Amen. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe. Remember all the Old Testament priests came from the tribe of Levites. The Levites. But Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priest. In other words, Jesus is just like Melchizedek. He comes out of nowhere. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, This is sweet. But by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what's the writer of Hebrews? Again, he's just amplifying, he's just repeating his argument that the Old Testament priests came through genealogy. They were descendants, physical descendants of the tribe of Levi called the Levites, one of them being Aaron, so sometimes you might see the words the Levitical priesthood, meaning the Levites. In fact, that's what the Old Testament book Leviticus is all about. It's about the responsibilities of the priesthood in administering primarily the sacrifices to be the mediator between God and Old Testament Israel, so you might see the word Levitical. You might also sometimes see the word the Aaronic or priests after the order of Aaron, because Aaron, the brother of Moses, was of the tribe of the Levites, and he was the first high priest of this Levitical priesthood. And so it's really the, it's, it's, it's synonyms. We're talking about the same thing. And what's, what, what the writer of, here, of Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus is a priest not because he descended from the Levites, but because he's like Melchizedek, who is this shadow even before the priesthood was instituted as a kind of Old Testament sign pointing to this one who would come outside of these means as a priest forever. And he is a priest not because of genealogy, but because of an indestructible life. Verses 18 and 19, it says this, for on the one hand, this is really important, this helps us understand the purpose of the Old Testament. Listen to these two verses. For on the one hand, A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Speaking about the Old Testament law, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law, verse 19, made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Okay, so I want to pause there because I want to make sure we understand the contrast that the writer is making. He's saying on the one hand is this former commandment. I think that's a broad reference to the Old Testament, to the law. And then he's contrasting it with a better hope, which is through Jesus through which we draw near to God. But he says something very descriptive about this old commandment. He says that it's the law, that it made nothing perfect, and it was weak and useless. It's important that we understand what he means by that. He means weak and useless, not meaning that it has no use, but it's weak and useless in as much as it was unable to actually solve the problem of human sin and judgment before a holy God. The law is good and righteous and holy and in some sense still endures today. I'm going to explain that, Lord willing, in just a moment. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is he's contrasting the new covenant with Jesus to the old covenant of the law. And he's saying that the law was useless, weak, could not make anything perfect. In fact, It was never intended to do that. It had its purpose, but it was never intended to save. save. So to help you understand the law and the new covenant, or the law and us today, I want to ask three questions, just very briefly. What is the purpose of the law? What did Jesus do with the law for us? And what is our relationship to the law now? I, I think this bears explaining, giving this description of Hebrews chapter 7 about the law. What, what's the purpose of the law? Well, Paul answers that for us in, in Galatians chapter 3. Let me read Galatians chapter 3 a few verses for us. Paul tells us why God has given the law. He, answer, he asks and then answers that question. Verse 19, Galatians 3, verse 19, why then the law? Referring to this Old Testament, the Old Covenant, all 600 and something regulations and prescriptions of the Old covenant law. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression. In other words, because of sin. Until the offspring, meaning Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediator, intermediary, meaning Moses. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God. In other words, he's saying, he's he's, he's anticipating the question. if, If the one whom the promise has been made is coming to solve the problem of the law, is there some sort of contradiction in the commands of the law for the people of Israel in the Old Testament? His conclusion is, verse 21, certainly not. Listen to this. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So right there, Paul is telling us that righteousness, or maybe we can put it this way, salvation, reconciliation with God, was never the purpose of the law. Verse 22, but Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the scripture or the law put us in prison. It's like it, it, it showed us, it, it, it called us guilty. It, it clarified our need for the promise, which is Jesus. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So what's the purpose of the law? Let me summarize what I think Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 3, in conjunction with the statements about the law in Hebrews chapter 7 that we just read, useless and weak. What does that mean? It means that the purpose of the law was always good and holy, but it was limited in God's redemptive plan. It was meant to be like a light that merely illuminates sin, puts us in prison. It shows us our guilt. It was never meant to solve the guilt. It was meant to show us our guilt, to show us God's holiness, and to point us to the promise to the one who could take away the guilt. So in that sense, the law is useless and weak. It could never bring about the perfection that it intended. And here's the argument of Hebrews. Follow me now, stay with me. The point the writer of Hebrews is making is don't go back to the law. Don't go backwards in the redemptive storyline because it was never intended. It was only meant to be like a schoolmaster, a tutor, a guardian, a light that shines to point you to Christ. Which then brings us to the second question. What did Jesus do with the law? I think this is a misconception. What did Jesus do for the law, for us, in in regards to the law? I think sometimes Christians, because they don't understand the whole counsel of God's word, they don't understand how the Bible fits together, we just kind of approach the Bible with this relief. Well, wow, I read some of this stuff in the Old Testament, seems kind of hard and rough. Thank God that we live now. And Jesus sort of showed up to say, ah, well, you know, all that stuff, it doesn't really matter anymore. Everybody just sit in my lap. Let's sing Kumbaya and just enjoy my feathered hair. That's that's an anemic and unbiblical picture of Jesus. What did Jesus do for this law that imprisoned all of us because of our sin? It turned the light of God's holiness and the light of our sin it points us to, what did Jesus do for this law, to this law, it, for us? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, he says, and these are, these are some sweet verses. Come on now, Romans 8. There is, there is, we're, we're in the middle of an argument here, but I hope I can explain this well. There's verses 3 and 4. There's some juice in verses 3 and 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because what did the law bring? It brought condemnation. It could never bring salvation, but it brought condemnation. And we're in the middle of this argument. But now Paul is saying there's no condemnation. Why is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Because Jesus just showed up and said, everything's going to be okay now. It's different now. No, there's more to it. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How did he do that? What has Jesus done with the law? Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh listen to this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit so what's what's that saying and paul's sort of fancy way of saying is that the law convicted us we are all guilty All of us have sinned. Every single person saved Jesus has sinned. Jesus comes, he lives a perfect life in perfect obedience to all of the law of God every second of his earthly life in his incarnation. So not only does he satisfy the requirements of the law, he then also lays down his perfect life as a punishment for all those that broke the law that would eventually trust in him. So not only does he obey the law, satisfied in his obedience, he satisfies the punishment that the law requires for those that break it on the cross. And so what is Jesus doing on the cross? He is satisfying, absorbing, removing taking care of the biblical word is propitiating the punishment of God for all those that broke the law that will trust in him and, and this is this is where it gets even better not only does he die to take the punishment the obedience because because Jesus Jesus's relationship to the law is two-sided Not only is there this active obedience from his whole life, obeying it completely, and then there is this receiving of the punishment of the law on our behalf, but now, don't miss this, all of the obedience, all of the perfection that Jesus has accrued in his actual earthly life. This is why the incarnation is so important. Now, on the death and resurrection of Jesus, gets imputed, accounted, given to those who trust in him. So two things are happening here in Jesus' work for the law on our behalf. he He is living a perfect life in accordance to the law and he's dying a sacrificial death not for his own law breaking but for ours and he absorbs all that punishment and then all of the obedience, all of the righteousness that Jesus has accrued in his real life now by faith gets accredited to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. That's, that's the conclusion of Paul in this glorious passage. One of, one of the most important verses in all the Bible. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you see what's happening. The two, the two aspects, the two sides of the coin of redemption are brought out in that text. Jesus becomes sin. He bears the punishment for our law-breaking, but we needed more than that. We needed more than our punishment removed. We don't, just need a, we don't just need to be brought to zero. We need the positive righteousness of Christ. We need obedience to be reconciled to God. In order to draw near to God... We need to not just be not guilty, we need to be made righteous, and that's what Jesus has done in regards to the law. He's taken away the punishment, and he's restored righteousness for all those that trusted him, and now this is glorious. Now the righteousness that we have is not our own, but it's Jesus's, and this is how glorious the gospel is. This is why some people have referred to the gospel as scandalously good news, is that you stand before God, not merely because Jesus has taken away your sin if you have faith in Jesus, faith alone in what Jesus, but because somehow, in the heavenly wisdom of God, not only has he taken the penalty for our sin, but he's imputed, he's given, he's credited. We stand in Jesus' righteousness before a holy God. And so, back to Hebrews. I know that seems like a massive rabbit trail, but I, I think it was a good one, number one. And number two, I think it's following the logic of Hebrews. Is that the contrast he's making? Come on, back to Hebrews 17, or back to Hebrews 7, 18, and 19. He's saying that the law was weak and useless in regards to actually solving the problem, for nothing was made perfect by the law. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. And what's this better hope? It's not just that we're not that we're merely not guilty, it's this this hope that now we can draw near to God with the righteousness of Christ. glory so what's the purpose of the law to show us our sin and our need for our savior what has Jesus done with the law for us he's died for our punishment that the law demands and he's satisfied the law and obeyed it so that now his righteousness is ours but now this is important I don't have time to get into this too much But what's our relationship to the law right now? I love the way this old uh, Puritan, I think his name was Samuel Bolton, um, and he said something like that the law, think, think about this picture, that the law sends us to the gospel to be justified. And then the gospel sends us back to the precepts or the the, the the principles of the law in order to be sanctified. So, yes, in one sense, the law has changed. Clearly, that's what it says in Hebrews. We don't have to offer animal sacrifices anymore. We can eat bacon. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. We, we don't have to go through ceremonial practices and sacrifices because... Those temporary aspects of the law have been satisfied by Jesus. But the moral teachings of the law, the lessons of the holiness of God and the purity and the reverence of God, all these things embedded in the law, personified most notably in the Ten Commandments, are all still in force in the heart because now the law is written on our hearts. And so the principles of the law are still in force for the Christian. And so the law in its old covenant sense, sends us to the gospel, to the cross, and then we're saved. And then the spirit of the law, of the love of Christ, sends us back to the wisdom of the law so that we might follow God even after we trust in Jesus. Well, let's continue. Verses 20 through 22. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who, who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. as referencing Psalm 110. More reference to how Jesus is like Melchizedek out of nowhere, standing above and beyond the Levitical priesthood. This makes Jesus the guarantor, love that word, of a better covenant. It's better because it draws us near to God. The former priests were many in number, verse 23, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Amen. Okay, before we end on verse 25, let me just show you a contrast between the Levitical priesthood and Jesus' priesthood. I just want you to see in a kind of table format the logic of the author of Hebrews 7. Just like you study the American Revolution, I want you to study the history of redemption so that we might deeper, appreciate God's glory in our great salvation. So here it is. You can put it up there. The Levitical priesthood in contrast to Jesus' priesthood. The Levitical priesthood was based on a genealogy of the flesh. It had to be a descendant of the tribe of Levi. But Jesus' priesthood is like Melchizedek's. It stands above and beyond, outside of that, not bound by human genealogy. The Levitical priesthood was weak and useless. It couldn't solve the problem. But Jesus' priesthood is better. It solves the problem. It satisfies the law. And it allows us to draw near to God by his imputed righteousness. The Levitical priesthood is not based on an oath. But Jesus' priesthood is based on God's oath. His double promise. His double promise that he was good for his word. The Levitical priesthood is numerous. There was a bunch of them. Because they get old and they die. They die. But Jesus' priesthood is just one. It's him because he is indestructible. And Levitical priesthood is temporary. But Jesus' priesthood lives forever. Which brings us to verse 25. Consequently, that's a conjunction. Now he's, he's wrapping up his argument here. And he's going to have more arguments. This isn't the end of Hebrews. He's going to have more arguments. This is just one conclusion amongst many in this glorious letter. Consequently, conjunction. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friends, if you're an underliner or a highlighter, I don't know where else you go other than that one right there. You got to I'm not putting a yoke on you. If you're not an underliner or a highlighter, be free in the Lord. Be free in the Lord. But if you are, and you don't underline or highlight 25, I question your underlining, highlighting wisdom. That's all I'm gonna say. Consequently, because of the greater priesthood of Jesus, what is the conclusion of the writer? He is able. Jesus is able. He's able. He's able to save. Jesus is the only one that can handle The problem between you and God. He's God in the flesh. We could go back and read Hebrews chapter 12 that we have a merciful and faithful high priest who's not acquainted with our weaknesses. Not only is he fully God, he's fully man. He sympathizes with us. He has lived in obedience to the law. And because he's a real true man, he's borne the punishment of the law on our behalf. But because he's holy God, he has enough holiness to satisfy all the punishment of all the law-breaking, of all the people that would ever trust in him. He is able to save. But he's not just able to save, he's, he's able to save to the uttermost. I love that word, uttermost. It, it, means, it means completely. And I just meditated, I, I think the primary point of that word is that he is able to save all of you, all of you. He's able to finish what he started. He's able to bring you all the way home. I think that's the primary point of that word, but I just meditated and Not only is he able to save every part of us, every deep, dark secret, every aspect of our lives, every nook and cranny of our spirit is redeemable. He He's able to save to the uttermost. There's nothing in your life. There's nothing that you've done. There's no deep, dark recess of your soul that the beauty of God's work through his son Jesus cannot touch and cannot save. He's able to do it completely. But not only that, he's, he's able to save those who are far from him, those people who seem like the most unlikely candidates of grace. He's able to see, save to the outermost. Nobody's beyond the reach of Jesus because to be dead in sin is to be dead in sin. There's nobody more dead than anybody else. Whether you're dead and upper class or whether you're dead and on the other side of the tracks, you're dead and Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. No situation, no consequence of sin, no predicament that we find ourselves is beyond Jesus' reach as the high priest to save, to mediate, to propitiate. To bring us near to God. There's no place you can go. There's nothing you can do. There's, there's nothing that you can do that puts you outside of the bounds as a candidate of God's grace. He's able, come on, uttermost. He's able to save to the uttermost. That's stronger than any but or any circumstance or any situation that you can bring after that. He is able to save to the uttermost. Those. Those. And only those who draw near to God through Him, not through their own righteousness, not through, not through uh, their their genealogy, not because they grew up in a, a, a good church family, not because their daddy was a deacon or their mama played their piano or their daddy was a preacher, not, not, not because they had good theology, not, not because they make more money than somebody else not not because they were the popular kid or the quarterback of the team or not because they were homecoming, whatever. Those who draw near to God, those and only those who in their weakness, in their need, they see what the law has done. They understand that they are helpless in their own righteousness. They understand that no matter where they come from, who they are, what their station in life is, that the Bible is clear. It accuses them and it says that your only hope is Jesus. And the only way that you get near to God. The only way this problem is solved is through him, the one who can save to the uttermost. And then here's this last phrase. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, this is amazing. Jesus has finished redemption. And in other places in the Bible, it says that he's seated at the right hand of God but it says that he daily lives. He always always lives to make intercession for them. He makes intercession for the people of God before God. That's the most important intercession he makes. He has satisfied the holiness of God that we could not bear on our own through his work on the cross. He has satisfied and he, is, he's, he intercedes for us before our accuser, the devil, who Revelation tells us, accuses us day and night. But we have, we have well, let's, let me read it. It's Revelation, this is, this, is, this is a beautiful passage. Revelation 12, the writer says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Listen to this. For the accuser of our brothers, that's Satan, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. I think this is speaking of the final judgment of Satan. So that means that even right now, Satan is accusing the people of God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. In other words, Jesus' work on the cross, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And so the devil is accusing God's people before the throne. And Jesus is reminding the devil and reminding us of the devil's defeat in our life. He's interceding. He's standing between you and the accusations of your enemy. He stands, he intercedes before God, he intercedes, he denies the devil and, and, and we don't talk about this much, but you know what? He, he intercedes even before our own consciences, the, the, the inner parts of our heart. Listen, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but i, I got to dip into chapter 9. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9. He says this. This is Jesus interceding for you. Okay, promise me that you'll forget all this because when, I, when we get to Hebrews 9, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to get into this again. <laughs> no, 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 remember. No, come on, we need to hear stuff more and more. We, Hebrews 9, verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this, this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, listen to this, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, listen to this, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. See, the biggest problem from some Christians is forgiving themselves and believing that God could really forgive them because your biggest enemy is your own conscience before the Lord. And friends, this verse is here today to testify to your heart that the work of Jesus is stronger than the accusations of your conscience against yourself. And do not, dear ones, do not minimize the power of the gospel and the power of the work of Christ by saying, yeah, but you don't understand how bad I am. Friends, he's able to save to the uttermost, and he daily lives to intercede on your behalf. That's who Jesus is. That's why his hope is better. That's why he's a better high priest. So Christian, Jesus is your living uttermost interceding priest. Friends who may be here that is not yet a Christian, I hope you've seen. And you may still have questions. So do I. But you can only, I know this for sure, you can only draw near to God through this priest. You need a priest. You need somebody that will stand between you and your maker. And the only one who can do that For you is Jesus. So trust, please, trust in Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the logic of Hebrews. Thank you for a church that loves to follow the logic of Scripture. But let it not just be Bible knowledge for the sake of Bible knowledge, let it reach down deep into our consciences. Right, I think it's possible to love the gospel and to love redemption, but to still hate yourself because you haven't let the gospel come down deep into your conscience. Lord, if there's somebody in here that that applies to, Lord, would you purify their conscience? Maybe they are still involved in sin that you have died for and the reason that their conscience is racked is because they are running to that thing and lord bring break that i pray break it let them see that jesus is better that drawing near to you is better you alone can satisfy and the enemy that accuses them, that brings a condemnation and guilt when they fall back into it, that then causes them to medicate their soul with just more sin. Jesus is a better priest who brings people to God. And when we get close to you, we have all that we need. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, take the gospel that we love to preach. We love to sing. We love to pray, we love to confess, and work it deep into the recesses of our conscious racked hearts. And Lord, only you can do this, only you can do this by your spirit. Make this so, Lord, for all of us, I pray, in a deeper way for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.